0: You'll find Acts chapter 20, verse 32, on page 1101 in those pew Bibles. And uh, last week, we finished up our series on judges. And if you weren't here, you have to go as quickly as possible to our website and listen to the sermon that Stephen preached last Sunday. It was unbelievable. Put your, put, put your whole life in airplane mode and give your time just to listen to the Word of God and the Gospel And it will be incredible for you, I promise. If you missed it, you have to, have to, have to go check it out. And uh, today we're starting a new sermon series, a mini-series, just three weeks, that I'm calling The Generous Life. During this three-week mini-series, we're going to focus on three specific aspects of Christ-like generosity. Today we're going to give our attention to the relationship between our experience in the gospel and a generous life. Next Sunday, we're going to spend our time studying the connection between our generosity and the mission of the church. Then on the third Sunday in this series, we're going to focus specifically about how we're to think about our finances and what a Christ-informed giving habit looks like. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, the church is out of money. (laughs) Why else would we talk about these things now? But I assure you, uh, we are in a season of healthy giving. This is not a knee-jerk response to some sort of need that's arisen. Uh, You guys are healthy givers, good givers. God is meeting our needs very, very well. But there's two specific reasons why we want to spend some time talking about matters of generosity and giving. The first reason is because in the next five-ish months, We're going to ask you as members of our church to pray about two opportunities to give above and beyond your regular giving to the church. Those two opportunities are, one, towards the end of October during our missions conference. As we do every year, you're going to be asked to pledge to give towards missions above and beyond your regular gift to the church. That's prayer opportunity number one. The second one, in early 2018, you're going to be asked to pray in consideration of giving towards a capital campaign to either reduce or eliminate our debt entirely. And so, in spiritual preparation for these two asks and these two opportunities, I want to spend some time now talking about these matters to help prepare ourselves so we can pray well and we can practice well when the time comes. The second reason for a series like this is the simple truth that stewardship is a holiness matter. Jesus talks about money. All the time. And the New Testament beyond the Gospels is not without references to what we are supposed to be like as followers of Jesus who have things. And so it's right for us to be concerned about the things that Jesus is concerned about. And he's certainly concerned about the way we live our lives in relationship to our possessions. Now that being said, there are valid reasons why we don't like to talk about this topic. Sometimes preachers have done damage in the way they've talked about money matters. If you've had experiences outside of South Shore Baptist Church, you may have sat under preaching that was legalistic and harsh in this matter. Or you may have sat under preaching that was manipulative or heavy-handed. Perhaps you experienced ministers who stole from your church or abused their access to the church budget. It could be your life has been damaged by the prosperity gospel and the false promises given by those, teacher, by those preachers with their hair plugs and their bleached teeth. There's often real hurt associated with the church's handling of financial matters, and so as a result, many preachers tend not to address the issue at all. We, we just leave it in prayer and for business meetings, and that's it. But my conviction is that if we look to Scripture on this matter, then we're not going to flinch when the topic comes up, nor will we become suspicious that there's something else going on behind the scenes, there's some sort of bait and switch going on, or there's something that we're not being told, and that's why we're talking about this stuff. I'm convinced that preaching on stewardship should be a regular part of a healthy preaching diet. And so since we have these two big financial opportunities on the horizon, and because Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we're going to study stewardship and generosity for just a few weeks. Now, stories of generosity resonate with people. One such story that came out of the hurricane in Houston a couple weeks ago was about a man named Jim MacKingvel also known as Mattress Mac. You may have heard this story. He owns a furniture store in Houston called Gallery Furniture. He has two locations. And the day after the hurricane, he opened his stores to people who needed a place to stay. Now, he just put out a little tweet and didn't think much about it. But by the end of that day, both of his stores were filled to capacity with 400 people who had come to seek shelter. The news stories snapped pictures inside the store. He's got these 100,000 square foot warehouses full of furniture, and you've got little kids playing on floor model mattresses, fulfilling every lifelong dream we've all had. (laughs) you got people sprawled all over every couch, every recliner. There's, there's human beings everywhere in this furniture store. The interviewer asked him, aren't you concerned about your inventory? And he said, not at all. I'll just do some sort of floor model sell after Harvey and we'll be just fine. Uh, but his biggest priority was not protecting his stuff. It was making sure that people were taken care of. Generosity resonates because it's not natural. It's not our natural bend, just because we live and breathe, to, to be free with our stuff, to give in a wanton way to people who are in need. Generosity always leaves a mark on our lives. Can you think about a time in your life when you were the recipient of someone else's generosity? And have you ever experienced someone else's generosity and been flippant about it? Or, or it's been not a big deal? Absolutely not. Every little act of generosity leaves a mark on us. And I think it's because when people are generous, we get a glimpse of the heart of God. I remember a couple of years ago, I had some late night meetings that had taken me through dinner time. And so on my way home, I stopped at Taco Bell. And there in the drive-thru, I place my order. It was about eight bucks. I get up to the window to pay, and the guy says, hey, the car in front of you, paid for your food i said no way it's awesome been a long day been a boring meeting and someone paid for my taco bell that's incredible and then i thought i'm gonna pay it forward so i asked well how much is the ticket for the car behind me and the guy said 26 bucks (laughs) (laughs) i said what they don't know won't hurt them (laughs) I received the blessing of bean burritos. Went on about my way. Generosity resonates in our lives. When people give freely, we're seeing the heart of God in action. Today we're going to study Acts chapter 20. It's a, it's a brief passage that is full of emotion. It's Paul's final words to some of his dearest friends. And in this final sort of interaction between Paul and the elders from the church at Ephesus. He talks to us about generosity of all things. So my goal today in preaching this passage is to show you how an experience with God's grace naturally results in a generous way of living. I believe if we understand generosity to be a core characteristic of followers of Jesus, then we will be A generous church so Acts chapter 20 starting in verse 32 is our passage for this morning and here's the setting the Apostle Paul is old he's on his last missionary journey he has gone on this trip uh, through modern-day Turkey he started in the east he hops around the Mediterranean all the way over to southern Greece And then he begins to make his way back to Jerusalem by hitting all these little port cities along the way. So they stop in a a Greek coastal city, or excuse me, a Turkish coastal city called Miletus. And Miletus is a neighboring town to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, Paul has sweet friends. So he calls, or he sends a messenger to Ephesus to bring the elders of the church to Miletus to spend a few last moments with Paul before he takes off again for Jerusalem. And uh, this is a big moment. It's an emotional moment. And, And you can see it in the text if you glance with me at verse 25. Look at what Paul says to his Ephesian friends. Verse 25, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. This is, these are last words. Paul knows he's not going to see. He's just got a sense. He's, he's going back to Jerusalem. He's taking this special offering with him for famine relief for the mother church in Jerusalem. And he's a wanted man there. He's got a feeling. When I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to prison as well. So this is it. These are last words. And I want you to put yourself in Paul's position You're face to face with some of your dearest friends. It's the last time you're going to speak with them. What are you going to say? Let's look at what Paul says starting in verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So in Paul's final words to his dear friends, he leaves them with a call to generosity. Isn't that strange? Is that what you'd be saying to your dearest friends on your way out, a reminder to them That it's more blessed to give than to receive? Is that what you would say? It's not what I would say, which is probably why it's so important that we bury ourselves in this text this morning. What I want to show you in this passage are two reasons why Christians must live generously. Two reasons from Paul why you and I as followers of Jesus Christ must hold our possessions loosely and leverage them for kingdom purposes. What are the two reasons why you should be a generous follower of Jesus Christ? The first reason is this. It's because we have experienced God's generous grace. In verse 32, Paul makes this abundantly clear. Since we have experienced God's generous grace, we are to be generous people. So, in this section of Paul's final speech to his friends, he says to them, I commit you, verse 32, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I commit you? In other words, he's saying, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, or I'm putting you under the protection of God and the word of his grace. Well, what is the word of his grace? This phrase that Paul uses can be summed up in the simple word gospel. We use that word just about every Sunday in some form here in our church. We talk about the gospel all the time, but I don't want to assume that we all know what we mean when we say the word gospel. So let me explain to you what the gospel is, what Paul means when he says this phrase, the word of his grace. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news. That God has rescued sinners from the death penalty we deserve. And that rescue is achieved through the giving of God the Son, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. And that rescue is received by sinners when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, plain and simple. It is the good news that God has acted on behalf of sinners through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and by believing, you can have life everlasting. Not by doing your best, not by being better than the next guy, but by believing, you have life everlasting. That's the gospel. What is it that motivates God to save sinners? It's not merit. It's not how good we are. If you evaluate your life and your conclusion is, God should be good to me because I am good, you've missed it. If you evaluate your life and say, I am moral. I'm not the worst. I know people worse than me. I've been a good husband, a faithful employee, a great wife and mother. All those things are honorable. I'm a veteran. These are beautiful things. But they do not increase our merit for salvation in any way at all. Nor can we say, I've done the best with the knowledge I have. That doesn't earn our salvation. If God gave us what we earned, every single one of us would face the eternity of his wrath. So it's not our merit that motivates God. It's his grace What does Paul call the gospel? The word of his grace. Not the word of what he owes good people. It's the word of his grace. God's salvation of your soul is a gift of grace. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. God doesn't save you because he sees potential in you. He doesn't save you because you're better than someone else. Every one of us, the verdict against us is right and just. We are guilty of our sin against a holy, holy, holy God. But God in his grace has acted in our favor through the gift of his son to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. We get this wrong so often. So often we think God only saves good people. And that's not who we are. Right, we think we have to get better first in order for God to turn our way. We define ourselves by our mistakes. So why wouldn't God do the same thing? If he's all-knowing, then he knows all of my mess, all of my failures, all my brokenness. He's got it all down. There's no way he would ever turn towards me. And if salvation was by merit, you'd be exactly right. God's posture towards you would be one of punishment and anger. You would be defined in his eyes by every one of your shortcomings. But since salvation is by grace, God's posture towards you is love. And he sees all your failures, he knows all your mess-ups, he knows all your doubts and fears. But what gives you value is not your actions. It's the God who created you. He loves you and he knows all your shortcomings and he loves you and he gave his son for you and he's worked salvation for you if you would just say yes to him. You don't clean yourself up and then come. You just come in all of your filth and you put all your trust and hope in Jesus Christ who died and rose again and your life has changed. And you're not perfect when you say amen at the end of that prayer, but you are forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ is yours. And then you begin a journey in sanctification, becoming holy. But it starts just by saying yes. You let God do the cleaning. He's perfect at it. He will not fail. But you've got to say yes to him. God's grace doesn't come to us in any small amount. He doesn't give us grace just enough to get by. Right? His grace to us is a generous grace. When we were dead in our sin, when we were weakened by our sin, God lavished grace on us for our salvation. So when you and I understand and experience God's extravagant grace towards us, well, then generosity is going to come naturally. When we are in love with this God who at his core is a generous God, When we are saved by this generous God, we're going to be those kinds of people as well. When we get the gospel wrong, we're going to get generosity wrong. If we get the gospel wrong, we feel like God is indebted to us. He owes us salvation. And therefore, we will think that God exists to serve my stockpile of possessions He's here to increase my wealth, to increase my things, to give me more stuff. And as a result, we will not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we get generosity wrong, we'll see other people as a threat to our little kingdoms. Therefore, we will not love our neighbor as ourselves. We get the gospel right. We get generosity right Generosity is as central a characteristic to the Christian life as love and forgiveness and prayer and worship. It is not a spiritual gift given to a select few. It is the life of every person who has experienced the extravagant, generous grace of God. So Christians are generous people because we have experienced God's generous grace i give you a second reason from our text as to why you and I are to be generous people. Second, we follow a generous Savior. We've experienced God's generous grace. Second reason to be generous is we follow a generous Savior. Verses 33 through 35. In this section, Paul's pointed us first to the gospel, and now he points us to his example. Look at what he says in verse 33. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. So, Paul makes this statement that to you and I, out of context, might seem weird. He's telling them, look, I've, I've not been engaged in ministry for my own personal monetary gain. I haven't gone around coveting, wanting, desiring other people's silver and gold and clothing. Uh, I haven't wanted all of that. Why has that stuff seemed little to Paul? I'll tell you why. Because he just told us in the verse before that those who are in Christ have an inheritance from God. The gospel saves us for this inheritance. Why would we want these created trinkets on this finite planet when God has an eternal inheritance for us. Look, if heaven is just the best thing Hingham has to offer, it's going to stink. I'll tell you that right now. But heaven is heavenly because God has provided for us this beautiful, perfect, incredible, eternal inheritance that far outweighs anyone else's gold and silver and clothing. Paul's not in this ministry for the money And uh, he's clear about this multiple times throughout his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says to the church at Corinth that although he deserves the right to be paid through his ministry, he chooses not to because he doesn't want anyone to question his motives. He'd rather do the double hard work of providing for himself and preaching the gospel rather than have to fight a battle with Corinthian Christians uh, who would call him an opportunist. So Paul's not in ministry for monetary gain, but rather he's worked hard to meet his own needs, and then he was generous to meet the needs of his coworkers. Did you see what he said there in verse 34? He supplied my own needs, and I supplied the needs of my companions. And then in verse 35, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. So here's the example that Paul wants his Ephesian friends to, and his south shore friends to follow. By this kind of hard work, I showed you how we're to help the weak. Well, what is the, this kind of hard work? Well, Paul means that we do gospel work not by coveting other people's stuff, but through generous living. We help the weak by treasuring the inheritance God has reserved for us. Not by living for people's tiny piles of possessions or for our own piles of possessions. Paul uses his resources for the sake of the gospel and with his final words he urges us to do the same. It's through this kind of hard work, this generosity that we are to help the weak. He's very specific with the target audience. We are to help the weak. So who are the weak that Paul refers to here? Well, the weak are those who have actual physical needs as well as spiritual needs. The term weak used by Paul here is not some metaphor just for the, the lost. In one word, he combines what some decry as the social gospel and then others uphold the spoken gospel. The term weak refers to people who are poor and who are needy and who are sick. And who are in some sort of physical need. Do those people need physical help? By all means, Paul says yes. And do they need to hear the gospel? By all means, Paul says yes. They need all of that together. And so why should we be these kinds of people? Why should we be generous towards people who are hurting and broken around us? Is it just because that's how Paul lived his life? That could be good enough motivation But Paul's not going to leave it just there with his example. Look at what he says at the end of verse 35. He says, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what is our motivation? Why should you and I intentionally be generous with the things we have in our possession? Because Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you evaluate your life, does your life give credibility to these words of Jesus? Do you live in such a way that people would look at you and say, she knows that it is more blessed to give than to receive? He believes the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Does your life reflect that? If you and I are selfish people, if we are hoarders of our possessions, the reason is because we don't believe these clear words of Jesus. We're telling Jesus, I've got a better security than your word Jesus, I disagree with what you've said here. Jesus, I'll have you for my eternity. I'll believe you for my forgiveness. But when it comes to my stuff, Jesus, don't intrude. You let me handle it on my own. I know you think it's more blessed to give than to receive, but I've got to hang on to some stuff for myself. We've got to wrestle with the words of Jesus at this point. And you and I should be generous people because of the experience Experience of God's grace in our lives, and because Jesus has told us so. Our generous Savior has called us to follow in His footsteps. So I want us to put a little bit of flesh on this idea. What does it look like? We've wrestled with the why we should be generous, why you've experienced God's generous grace, why you follow a generous Savior, how, how. What should you and I do? I think the text is not without some pointed application as well for you and I. So let me share with you real quick three ways you and I can be generous from this passage. I'm really proud of my alliteration of these three points. They all start with P. It's hard work for me. We'll be generous with our alliteration today. So how are you and I to live as generous people? First of all, proximity. We need proximity to those who are weak. We have to be close to people who are in need in order for us to give, in order for us to help the weak with this kind of hard work. Now, you may not have to look too far to find people to be the targets of your generosity. Even large houses are filled with broken lives. However, if you evaluate your life and you see that you live in a cloistered comfort, your response to the words of Paul and the words of Jesus may be to insert yourself into a different environment altogether intentionally so you can be flesh on flesh with homeless people, with teen mothers. Those who are drug addicted, those in nursing homes, refugees, so many people are hurting around us. And if your life does not intersect with them on a regular basis, you've got to change course. You've got to put yourself in the path of those who are hurting. You have received so much from God. You've got such a generous Savior who has rescued you and strengthened you. How can we hang on to these and say, Well, I just don't have the opportunity? You make the opportunity. It's an easy car ride, a train ride, a change in schedule, a conversation. But it's living in proximity to people who are in need. Here's a second way you and I can live generously practice, do it. What Paul says to us this morning is not just to inform our theology, then we can walk out and answer some quiz as to what we believe about Christians and possessions. He tells us this so that we would actually do something with it. That's the messy thing about the Word of God. You don't read it for the warm fuzzy. It messes you up because it shakes you from your comfort and challenges you to live in a different way. Now, sometimes we will justify our lack of generosity by saying, well, if I had more, then I would be generous. But there's this biblical principle that if you're not faithful with little, you're not gonna be faithful with much. If you're not generous with what you have today, you wouldn't be generous with what you would if you had more. When you play the little megabucks lottery game in your head, God, if you would just give me this, I would give so much to my church. Well, no, you wouldn't. We wouldn't want it anyways. But if we're stingy with little, we'd be stingy with a lot. So our problem with generosity is not a lack of stuff. It's a lack of obedience. My wife, Melissa, and I have a dear friend, a pastor in Uganda whose name is Wilbur Okumu. And Melissa was in his church one Sunday morning. He pastors a church, a large church, in a good sized Ugandan city. Uh, but all of his parishioners, even though they live in the city, are, they're an impoverished people. That's just life for the average Ugandan. They were doing an outreach project in a village way outside of civilization. And poverty in the city is one thing, but poverty in the village is a whole other thing altogether. And so they wanted to go and be a blessing to these people and meet some physical needs. So Pastor Wilbur stood in front of his congregation. He told them about the work they were going to be doing. And he said, in this next week, I want you to bring in clothing and some supplies that we can take and give to these hurting Christian people. He said, now you may not have a lot, but if you have two dresses, bring one of them. And if you have two suits, bring one of them. We're going to take and give to these people and meet their needs. And no one stood up and said, if I had three suits, Pastor, then I could participate. Ugandans think different than we do, especially Ugandan Christians. They were overwhelmed with donations and goods from people who possess nothing but are generous with everything they have. So our lack of generosity is not because we don't have enough to give. It's just because we don't believe enough to give. Generosity, does it involve our checkbook? You better believe it does. But not only that. You should be generous with your lawnmower. You should be generous with your rake, right? Tis the season or it's coming soon. You should be generous with your dinner table. You should be generous with your talents. You should be generous with your car. You should be generous with your time. We have so many things at our disposal with which we can be generous. We simply need to practice it. Proximity, practice, final how, preach. Generosity is an amplifier for the gospel story. When you and I are generous, we are living, breathing parables that make the gospel understandable. All too often when we think about sharing our faith, we get worried about arguments, having an answer for every question, winning the debate, as if people are won to the kingdom by losing debates. I just don't see that as an effective tool. But it's my contention that we dispel so much erroneous thinking about God and salvation through generosity. Not by carefully crafted arguments. Oh, we've got to know some things. We've got to have some answers. But generosity moves people towards the cross. In generosity, people see a small snippet of the kind of generous God who's calling them to trust in him to save them. So we've got to preach the gospel. You give a toaster and you tell people about Jesus Christ. You fill a gas tank and you say, I'm doing this because Christ has done so much for me. You spend the time, meet the need, do the thing with the gospel on your lips. Generosity amplifies the word of his grace. So why should you and I be generous people? We've experienced God's generous grace, and we follow Jesus, our generous Savior. And it's not hard work, but it can be scary work. Uh, In his book, Run with Horses, Eugene Peterson tells this story about parent birds teaching their baby birds to fly. It's that time. And so three baby birds are on a branch, and the adult birds bump them Until the outermost bird falls off the end of the branch. And somewhere between the tree and the ground, instinct kicks in, the wings come out, and little bird flutters off just as it's designed to do. Same thing happens to bird number two, bumped off the branch, begins to fall, flies off. Bird number three, a little more stubborn, clings to the branch, not going to let go. The bumps dislodge it a bit. It swings upside down but still clinging onto the branch. Mommy and Daddy Bird begin to pick away at baby birds' talons. Do baby birds have talents? Feet? Toes? Until the pain overrides the fear and the baby bird lets go and then what do you know? The wings work. The bird does what the bird is designed to do. You see the the mature birds knew something that that baby bird did not they knew it would fly there was no danger in making that little bird do what it was designed to do so peterson writes birds have feet and can walk birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. Giving is what Christians do best. It's the air into which we were born. It's the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some people cling to their possessions. Hold on to these in some false sense of security. And when Christians especially live that way, those Christians are a tired and sad people, trusting in stockpiles of stuff more so than the God who created all of these things and saved them from their sin. So many people think they can't live generously. And the only reason is because they have never tried. Before we were born, God planned for these kinds of works for us to do. He has prepared it far in advance. You and I are meant to live this kind of life. We are saved to live generously by giving generously of our time, our talents, our finances. Brothers and sisters, we were meant to soar. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for Paul's words to us on a very sensitive matter. And uh, my prayer in the weeks leading up to this Sunday remains the same. I know we tread on um, delicate ground here because this is such a sensitive matter for so many of us. But Lord, my prayer is that the truth of your word would rise above the hurt in our experiences. The truth of your word would rise above our sinful obstinance. And we would understand that this is who you've created us to be, a generous church, a generous people. Help us in our unbelief to believe the words of Jesus, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let us see that everything you have given us is a tool for kingdom work. Father, lead us, convict us of the sin of trusting in our things more so than you. And let there be no mistake, Lord, that South Shore Baptist Church is a generous church by the evidence of her members. Thank you for all you have given us Thank you for the inheritance that you have reserved for us in eternity. Lord, thank you for creating us for more than things. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.